0: Otherwise, we're here. All's good. So, would you all pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be able to come together on this Tuesday as we do nearly all Tuesdays. We come together to study your word, to carve out this time out of our weeks to contemplate you and your ways and um, help us to... Help us to hear Paul well, help us to gain a better understanding of what this letter meant to the people he wrote it to, and help us to then bring that letter um, forward to to our world and our time and to us, to each of us. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Right, so I've been thinking about that task a little bit lately, and I, I can tell from his sermons that Arthur has as well, this task of willing to, be, willing to enter the ancient world so that you can try to understand what Paul's letter meant f- for the people to whom it was actually written. And um, it is only when we do that can we then go on to talk about what it means for us. And if you leave out that first step, you can make the Bible mean anything you want. It's a little bit like the fight. I was reading a very interesting article a few days ago. It's a little bit over the fight over how to interpret the Constitution. And you probably know that there are originalists, right? Who want to begin with the text and are committed to, to, to trying to do no more than interpret that text when it comes to um, uh, uh, judging about the laws that are passed by Congress or others. And so in a way, the task of those originalists is the way I see the task of biblical interpreters. We have to go back as best we can to hearing Paul in the ancient world. And we're gonna run into this today. There is, if we get to chapter 11, and I suspect we will, there's just a just, uh, chapter bits and pieces there that people trip all over. And it's really because they don't try to understand it in the ancient world and then just bring it forward and recognize, well, we do live 2,000 years after. We don't live in Paul's world. We got They have their issues. We have our issues. Paul would write a different letter to us. So um, I think those two, those two tasks, you, you just can't skip the first one. So last week we left it. At chapter ten, verse fourteen. That's that's we didn't get to verse fourteen last week, um, and, and Paul is really in this large section about Christian freedom and the right that we have as free people, but how we should see those rights and how we should behave within those rites. That just because you're free to do something doesn't mean that we should do that, right? So that, he's still in that large section. He started talking about idol meat, actually. See, that's a funny thing, isn't it? You know, that this big section of the letter is, you keep running into this section of can I eat meat sacrificed to idols? So let's just talk about that for a second. So there's two ways a person in the ancient world might encounter meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god or goddess. First of all, you might go to the little restaurant of sorts that was attached to the temple for that god or goddess. And that was where a lot of the restaurants were. There were so many temples of all the various gods and goddesses, and there were so many sacrifices that that was a pretty efficient way to run things. But that wasn't the only way that you might encounter meat sacrifice to idols you it might be by you went down to the market and you bought some meat and brought it home and threw it on the barbie right that would be a second way something to keep in mind is that if you were poor if you were a slave you didn't really get to eat meat that was the province of people of greater means because meet cost and, and the poor people and remember the social and the socioeconomic structure of their societies like the Eiffel Tower there is sure there's the upper class there's something resembling a middle class but then it spreads out at the bottom over a large group of poor people slaves freed slaves and stuff who scrape by in life who um, don't have a lot of choices um, and as I've conveyed to you many times, I heard a lecture one time, I listened to it, uh, where it was in, it was on the Greco-Roman world, and it just was t- the title was all you really needed to hear: women and slaves, less than human. Okay, and that's that conveys so much about the nature of this world and so Paul is coming into this world he is a product of this world right he didn't grow up in Galilee he didn't grow up in Judea he grew up in Asia Minor he grew up in Tarsus the city on the southern coastline so Paul is a product of the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish world melded together and he's a Pharisee and an intellect and because he's on the further eastern end of the Roman Empire, that's where he's like from and where he grew up, he's probably more societally conservative. Because Rome was a place that was a little bit, boundaries were being pushed more than they were in the traditional Greek cities. Okay, now Corinth, where we are, is, was a city that was a Greek city taken by the Romans, burned down by the Romans, and, and a hundred and years later rebuilt by the Romans, and rebuilt as pretty much a Roman city. So it was kinda like kinda like between the 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 more little bit more liberal, not a lot more liberal, little bit more liberal Roman world and the more conservative, traditional Greek world that Paul grew up in and probably influenced him and the eating of the meat you're going to have to bear in mind where people encounter it because that's the only way to make sense of some of the stuff he says that at some point and you wish he was clearer. as I told you it's a letter it's an actual letter he's probably dictating most of it Um, you would like to sit down with him and say you know what are you talking about here just like you say to me. What are you talking about here? Okay? Because it's not always clear. That's okay. We're not always clear when we express ourselves. It it isn't like God inscribed these words on granite. This is a letter from Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Paul the Apostle has his contribution to, to this letter. Okay, so look at verse 14. Well. The previous, well, just, just to get to, Caracas, where, does, where does verse 14 begin? It begins with a therefore. So he has been building this argument. Last week we looked at the foundations in the history of Israel. Because what he's talking about is fleeing from idolatry. Because good Jews, good Christians did not engage in idol worship or idol practices or have idols of any kind or didn't hang around idols and didn't hang around temples and didn't have in their homes in these cities the kind of typical things that you would find. Typically you'd walk into a, into a household in this city and there in the corner would be a, like a little curio cabinet kind of thing, little shelves and you'd have all these figurines of little gods and goddesses on them that some for the home and hearth and some favorites that they had because everybody had their favorites. So he says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. It's a message for us today. Because it, it's not that we're plagued by little figurines, but idolatry is when is whatever you worship <laughs> that isn't God. And what you, are, what you worship is what you're putting at the center of your life, and that can be many things. The obvious examples pastors are always comfort, comfortable talking about is like money or sex or power. But see, it might include family. You know, you have to begin with God if you want to get the family stuff right. God has to be at the center. So he says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. That word sensible is a word they would like to hear about themselves. He may be gigging them just a little bit, right? Because that's how they see themselves. I'm speaking to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And the answer to both is yes. Of course, this is not liturgical. He will get more, you'll hear more liturgy sounding stuff in, in a little bit. But here it is, trying to help them grasp that through the cup and through the bread and other reasons but those are two illustrative reasons why we are bound together in a covenant you and me paul and the corinthians you and me me and ben and and susan and carol pick anybody all of us together we're all bound together In this body of Christ, this is my body, this is my blood, which is shed for you. And so Paul is calling them away from their tribal tendencies, to use Arthur's words from Sunday. You see, Arthur is preaching Paul right now. And he's doing a smashing job, I must say. So, right? So, so he's bringing out these themes we find in Paul, and one of them is this, this new identity in Christ and this covenant that binds us all together, a covenant empowered by the Spirit, like the covenant that the Israelites entered into Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, that they were a people; they were Abraham's people, and they entered into a covenant with God. And now, in Christ, we have transcended that, because now we've pulled the Gentiles into this covenant. So, in in an earlier letter than this one, is Galatians, is when he says, "We are all one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor." Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. That, that's earlier, that's, that's several years before he writes this. That is what it means to come to Christ. There's not, an individu- there's not a strong individualistic aspect to it. Though we American Westerners And probably other Westerners, but I think it's particularly American, we we tend to read it that way. It's very individualistic. Where am I with Christ? Where am I? Where am I? Where am I? Where am I? When really it's about, where are we? Where are we? And uh, am I part of the body of Christ? (laughs) A wise man once wrote that you can't you can't have a healthy relationship with Jesus without a relationship with the church, his body. You 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 can't sit at home. Some people have to. I understand that for re for reasons. But most of us can. Most people can. You need to be part of the body of Christ. You need to be part of a church. And you prob what well what will that mean to a person? The next time somebody it will mean that you will get annoyed with people. Right? Arthur even talked about that on Sunday. Didn't he talk about that on Sunday? Yeah, that people can be annoying because we're people. So? Yeah, okay. But this is what we're called to. Because, look at verse 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. (coughs) It's metaphorical, yes, of course, but you get it. He's driving these disparate Jews and Gentiles, whoever it might be, toward, toward a unity in Christ because that is what the Holy Spirit has created. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Well, that made me scratch my head. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. So, I looked up a cross-reference and, look at, and I actually wrote it down so I wouldn't lose it. Look at Deuteronomy 14, verse 23. Okay, we'll just do it together. Deuteronomy, verse, chapter 14, verse 23. See, for Paul, being um, a fair Jew, a Pharisee, a person of great intellect, he, these, stuff, these things are all just woven into him. So sometimes he quotes, and in some t- translations, this verse that I just read from 1 Corinthians is in quotes. But... You know, the NIV doesn't, and that, that is okay. But we do, do need to see, so. <clears throat> oh man, how could I write it down and get it wrong? No, that's not what I want. Oh, well,
1: 7,
0: be sure to set up. Mm. Eat. There we go. I am right. I am right. I am right. So, because it's about eating. I threw myself, this is how little confidence I have in my own memory these days. Eat the tithes of your grain, new, and, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks, in the presence of Yahweh your guard at your, your God, at the place he will choose as a dwelling place for his name, which is the tabernacle and later the temple. So Paul is reminding people that even the Israelites gathered to eat sacrifices. To whom? The question is, to, wh- to whom are they eating? Who, who are these sacrifices for that they are eating? Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not for Zeus and Apollo, and whatever, whoever else you might think of. Yes, Patty? Oh, I saw his hand moving. No. Okay, so you might keep your finger there in Deuteronomy, because we're going to go back to it in another minute, because he's just drawing on it, and he's trying to make this point of his. So, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Yes, because that verse we read says specifically eat them in the presence of Yahweh. And that would be the temple or the uh, tabernacle. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Well, we heard the the answer to that question in chapter 8. The answer is straightforwardly, no. The idol is nothing. These gods don't exist. They are figments of people's spiritual imaginations. There is no Zeus. There is no Apollo. There's no point in praying to them. There's no point in talking to them. There's no point in going to their temple. There's no point in eating food. that has been sacrificed to them. They don't exist. So verse 20, he writes, No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons not to God and I do not want you to be participants with demons. Okay so now I'm really hoping I got this I'm gonna assume I got this right go back to Deuteronomy and go to chapter 32 and this is all to help you see how thoroughly grounded In the Hebrew Scriptures, Paul is an aside also is that you get to see how important Deuteronomy is in the New Testament because it's very, very important in the New Testament. Okay, so I said Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to start half a verse earlier in verse 15. They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their Savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed the false gods which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that had recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. Look down at verse 21. They made me jealous by what is no God. So what is no God? No God is one of these pagan idols. They are like no no hyphen God. These pagan idols are like no God. And angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. There's just, Paul isn't inventing anything in this chapter. He's gone back to the Hebrew scriptures that he grew up with, and he understands is the foundation for what God has done in the world through Christ. And that's why he's using them, to draw these analogies, and the comparisons, so that people get the fact that he's not just not laying down... A whole bunch of new stuff nobody ever heard before. (coughs) Only if they were taught it, right? And so they would have, yes, they would have been taught this. So it would depend on how long they had been. this is one of the reasons in the early church the um, people were, entered a three-year period of instruction before they were baptized because this is all new to them. But it's still the foundation of his argument. You see, that, that's why people need to learn, that's why Christians need to learn the Old Testament, because that Old Testament stuff is the foundation. It is what brings you forward to Jesus. And without it, you might mistakenly think, well, Jesus could have just popped down and landed in, you know, London or Paris or somewhere. No, he is the product of he is the fulfillment of everything that came before, and so they all link together they're all these so the New Testament is filled with quotations, allusions, echoes of the old Testament paul's letters are that doesn't have to quote, have to have quotation marks around it to to get that, and that's one thing you know commentaries are helpful for because You know, the scholars do the work of pulling those things out and apart for us so we can see the depth of what Paul's doing. Verse 21, you cannot, back in 1 Corinthians 10, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. So, in Paul's view, are there, is Zeus and Apollo real? No. No. Are demons real? Yes. 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 So for Paul and really your Bible, there is a thin veil between our world and the, and a world a world of spirits, a world of angels and demons. And I th- I think I'm right about this, that the, you know, the difference between an angel and a demon is simply that an angel has chosen for God and works for God's purposes, and a demon is an angel who has chosen against God and works against God's purposes. And if you're going to ask me why they do that, I can only tell you why, ask you, well, why do we? That's how they are choosing to exercise their free will. Um, And so... Though Paul knows that the cup that these that the meat or whatever that's been sacrificed to idols is really just it's just meat. I think particularly if you're going to a temple devoted to the worship of these false gods, paul sees Paul sees that as sort of entering the world of demons and those who work against God. And he wants these Christians to stay away from it. So I I think when we read this, there's a difference between going to the temple restaurant where you're sort of now stepping into the arena where Paul views the demons as operating or eating some, eating a burger at your house that you purchased at the market. It's a very, it's a big challenge for modern Westerners, right? To say that demons are real or to say that Satan is real. And for much of my life, I kind of denied all that. Satan was the personification of the wrong that we do and so forth. And I have changed my mind 180 degrees. And I've changed my mind because it's, it's so much a part of the biblical view and it's just kind of cheating. Because we all want to believe in angels, but to say that you believe in angels and you don't believe in demons is just cheating. Of course you want to believe in angels and of course you don't want to believe in demons, but so what? They're both part of this spiritual realm and I think our world is deprived, we were depriving ourselves If we don't come to see that there is a larger, that reality is larger than anything we can see and touch or use electron microscopes to reach or particle colliders or web telescopes or anything, that God's reality is larger than that. And that there are beings (coughs) created by God who do work against God's purposes. (laughs) They have limited power. They've already lost, right? Jesus' death and resurrection is all about the fact that God's victory over sin and death and the demons and the rest has already happened. That's what Revelation is all about. But, but they still, and Paul clearly believes that they pose a danger to these new Christians. Yes, Ben? One of your lectures, the devil made it to make you do it. You always said that he can't make you do anything. So we're going to put the devil in the category of a demon. Yes. But Jesus actually took demons out of people because they were doing bad things. You'll have to help me with the uh, analogy here. Okay? Because you won't find in Scripture any place where Jesus does an exorcism of somebody who has come to Christ, or Paul, or anybody else, okay? And the demons that inhabit these people, see, man, I'm comfortable with these two things both being true, okay? That there are demons, and there are episodes we have in our New Testament in which people have, like, epilepsy or illnesses. I don't see those being mutually exclusive because we've learned so much more about God's world and God's creation and the rest of it. But when it comes to Satan, the you I don't know Satan only only tempts. Tempts people. He tempts people. Now, you know, you might say, "Well, I'm weak and I give into the temptation, so in that way the devil made me do it." But um Even Jesus, Satan only only tempts. Because, see, Satan doesn't really, another mistake we make is that we end up sort of seeing this competition between God and Satan, right? As if they were two equals. But they're not two equals, are they? There is God. And Satan is one of God's creations. And is not God and it's not it's not a struggle between two divinities or something like that like I think people see it so I think in my experience people wanting to say well the devil made me do it is a way of escaping responsibility for things that they have done and I, I don't think we should do that we need to be responsible for our actions. Um, how many times in the Bible does God treat people like adults who are old enough to make decisions and he won't protect them from those decisions because they're adults. It's like when they, when they leave Mount Sinai and head for the promised land and they chicken out and they won't, they won't trust God and so what does God do? He says, well, I'm going to Use my powers to take you in, even if you don't want to go. No, that isn't what God does. God says, well, okay. Then you won't enter the promised land, and your children will. That's how the story goes. Good question, though, Ben. Thanks. Okay. Yes?
1: that day in class because you were. Much to my chagrin. Yes. (laughs) You still remember that day. I do, yes. Okay, so you were, in in my opinion, that day, you were sort of uh, being devil's advocate with me, and you were saying that, no, I should know better, we all should know better that there are no idols, so us eating this meat, and I said, I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way. And the fact that Paul says that if somebody has a weak conscience, you shouldn't do it. I don't know what that means. But all I know is my point that day was, obviously, I'm not hanging around with any Satan worshipers. But if I did, and I went to some event where there was meat that had been offered to Satan,
0: you were still saying that I Because I be because wasn't thinking it through well. And see, Satan, if you if you turn it from a pop, Zeus into Satan, you... What are you in, and, and you have people who are worshiping Satan no less? You've created two issues. You've turned Satan into a into an idol, right? Yes. Not simply a demon anymore. Now he's an idol because people are worshiping him, right? Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, he's an idol, but on the other hand, he does exist. So you're right. So avoiding. I Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, really, it's just the kind of thing where, again, you, you wish Paul were just a bit clearer about this, um, and and some of that, I think, is going to stay with us for a while here. I mean, really, in chapter 8, he goes into such detail. He does. And he pretty much says, go ahead and eat the meat. He does, However, he does. If you're a brand new friend. Because cause he wasn't thinking of Satan, no, Satan worshipers. He was, because that's not the world he lives in. The world he lives in is not people running around worshiping Satan because Satan is part of the Jewish framework. Almost nobody in Paul's world, numerically, is Jewish. Almost everybody's Gentile. They don't know about Satan because they don't know anything about the Jewish scriptures or anything. They had never run into the accuser or in the book of Job and all that kind of stuff. What do they worship? Who do they worship? Apollo, Zeus, Diana, and all the rest of them, this huge plethora of, of gods and goddesses. So, so that's Paul's focus. That's the challenge, none of us live in that world. I don't go to anybody's house who has a statue of Zeus, other than maybe his decorative art, but I'd even say don't do that. <laughs> Fortunately, I don't go to anybody's house who is worshiping Satan that I'm aware of, okay? But that, thats a place where <coughs> we do have Satan worshippers. I claim to be in our world, not—not not in this world, because it's a Jewish idea, and no Jew would ever worship Satan, and no Gentile had ever heard of Satan. So, I—I <coughs> I know that there was, you know, uh, temples to every god possible, and even yes. unknown gods, so you wouldn't
1: accidentally forget somebody and have them be mad at you. Yes. So, Was working against God they only saw that no we've got a million of them and we have to keep them happy there was never anybody that was that was pure evil
0: no there wasn't and they would never say well somebody's working against God because that word God for them is not what it means for us we live as monotheists we worry about the problem of evil the problem of evil is well you know if God is all powerful and all good how could anything be wrong with this world That's only a problem for monotheists because if you're the pagans who are polytheists, they can say, oh, you know, (laughs) that God over there, old Mickey over there, he's making life miserable for us without at all tainting Zeus and anybody else. So they were always gods to blame. Really, it's a good idea to go home, maybe it's a good idea, I don't know, and find that old movie Jason and the Argonauts. Because in the silliness of all that moon movie and the really crummy special effects, you can see the ancient view of the gods. Because the gods are up on top of Mount Olympus. They look down through an opening in the clouds and they see the little people down there and they move them around like little ants and they decide who they're going to make trouble for and who all the rest of it. They're just, and so that's, those are the kind of anxieties people lived with in that world. was, oh my gosh, you know, how do I stay out of their way? Just leave me alone. Just let me stay out of the way of the gods. I want to be nice and invisible to the gods because it's more likely to go wrong than right. That, so in that way, it's hard for us. So we have to read this in that way. And that's why there would not be Satan worshippers. But your question, my dear, was excellent. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. Verse 22. After saying you can't participate in the Lord's table and in the table of demons, boil it down. There's choices to make in life. There's choices to make in life. And if Paul's going to tell you that really going to the temple and eating, eat, eat, eating the barbecue there is not a good idea because that is the domain of the demons that just don't. Okay? Verse 22, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Which came out of that passage that I read. Are we stronger than he is? No. Today would probably say it's something like, well, don't tempt fate. But this is what Paul says, because fate, actually, did you know fate is one of the um, goddesses in Greek mythology? Yes. So, all right, verse 23. Noted, did you, you notice it's in quotes. The translators are correct, <laughs> bless them, in recognizing that this is something, again, that they are saying to Paul, That I think we've run into this once before in the, in the letter. I have the right to do anything. What does Paul say? I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. That sounds like it would come out of my mother's mouth. <laughs> I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. That would definitely come out of my mother's mouth. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Wow. Wow. It's too bad that's stuck at the end of a paragraph here. That is foundational for Paul. That is Philippians 2, verses 1 to 5. Put other people's interests ahead of uh, your own. Set aside your selfish ambition. Have the mind of Christ, who humbled himself, took on human flesh. That is, that is, that, that is, that is bottom line for Paul. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. What is love? You want a good definition of love? Verse 24, self-sacrificing love. That's what love is. Love is when someone is willing to lay down their life for their friends. That's what love is. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. He's calling us to a different kind of life because we're very good at seeking our own good. Okay? Verse 25. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. That's the market. For, quote, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's kind of goes back to chapter 8, doesn't it, Patty? You know, it's all God. This is all God's world. So, yeah, you go down there, you buy your... (laughs) It's not going to be pork chops for Paul. I guess he could, but I bet he didn't. He's free to eat pork chops now, but I still don't know that he did. Right? So, (laughs) go down and throw something on the barbie. Get to get to the market. Sure, no problem. 27. Now... He's got so pastoral and practical in this as he tries to wind his way through, the, through all the questions that people could come up with. That's the problem, right? He's, a, he's, he's, a, he's hundreds of miles away from these people now writing a letter. He's trying to come up with words to answer all the questions they might ask. So that would really be hard. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Just eat it. You're at somebody's house. They serve you food. Don't ask them where it all came from. Everything is God's. Just eat it. But if somebody there says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Because that sentence raises for Paul the question of the weaker brother, which just means somebody who's newer in the faith and his conscience is troubled when it shouldn't be troubled. And do we want to make somebody go against their, their conscience that's already troubled in Paul's view in chapter 8 is no. Just, just don't. But so that's really where he was, I think, in chapter 8. So if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed and do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience not yours for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? (sighs) Question mark. Okay. To help us there Richard Hayes does my, one of my favorite uh, Paul scholars paraphrased those verses, and he does it this way. He says, "Eat everything sold in the meat market, you don't need to engage in any scrutiny for the sake of conscience, for as scripture says, "The earth and its fullness belong to the Lord, who is of course, Jesus, you know? If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you want to go, eat everything that is put." in front of you, you don't need to engage in any scrutiny for the sake of conscience. Parenthesis, now, if some weak brother or sister says to you, this is sacrificial meat, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who made an issue out of it and for the sake of conscience. I certainly don't mean your own conscience, I'm talking about the conscience of the other person, close parens. As I say, you yourself don't need to engage in any scrutiny for the sake of conscience. For why should my freedom be judged by the limited moral awareness of somebody else? If I partake with thanks, why am I denounced for the food over which I give thanks? So, and then he says, again, it must be remembered that this discussion is framed with Paul, within Paul's more fundamental call for believers to exercise their freedom by surrendering their prerogatives, if necessary, for the sake of their brothers and sisters in the faith. That's that's the point. It's just and that's why that's why this verse 24 is so fundamental. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. And so he's if I were to summarize it, how would I summarize it? That Paul is urging the more mature believers. Remember, he, he, go back to chapter 3 for a second in 1 Corinthians. Gosh, I hope that was the place. Yeah. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. And you see that he's dealing not with a monolithic group of people in terms of where they are in their Christian faith, because he says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready yet for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. So he has to write to them, in a way that reflects his desire for those infants in the faith to not be, for their consciences not to be harmed. It's a very, in a way it's a very elevated moral issue because it's not even an issue about what somebody does so much. It's about their conscience, their conscience. Okay, so Verse 31, back at 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, because he wants everyone to listen to him. He says elsewhere, I'll be a Jew for the Jews, I'll be a Gentile for the Gentiles, I'll be whatever people want, I'll be tall, I'll be short. I don't know. I think if you lived today, you said, I'll be black, I'll be white, whatever. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Why? So that they might be saved. That's why Paul does this. Paul knows that he walks in a world in desperate need of rescue. Not just improvement but rescue, and a rescue that cannot be a world that cannot rescue itself. And so he preaches, this is about Jesus being Savior. And then he says to them, because this next sentence, which is the first sentence of chapter 11, sadly, and should the, the chapter break should not be here, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Philippians 2, chapter 10, verse 24, and throughout Paul's writings. Put the interest of others ahead of your own. And he's just, all he's following is Jesus. He says this, for this is what love is, that you would lay down your life for your friends. And Paul is putting that into practice. Seek the good of others. So, so, we're going to have a dram- kind of I guess kind of dramatic change here, which is going to be big fun. so um, anything else? anybody would like to any questions? anything you'd like to add to that to all that? The challenge is bringing it forward to our day and and recognizing we need to make sure that what or who we worship in life is God and no one else. Not them all, God. And we need to really strive to use our freedoms well, rather than thinking of freedom in Christ as a freedom from something, to think of it as a freedom for something. And what is that for? For the good of others, for bringing them the gospel, bringing them the good news, trying to live a life that attracts people to Jesus. Why? So that they may be saved. Not so that they can just, yes, they can lead a better life, but for Paul, it's more fundamental. He doesn't say so that they may, you know, lead a more abundant life for the rest of their life on earth. That's not it. Why? So they may be saved. That's why he does what he does. So, Anything? Wait, I can't hear you, Kathy, and I'll repeat. Okay, you were that epilepsy the what? Mm. No, what I said was the ancient world didn't understand anything about how the human brain works. And so I think that we should not be surprised that in things that happen in the ancient world they are understa- understood sometimes, but really that whole business is one I'll have on my index card for God because I, I, I just don't think, I think you can't hold as I do to the belief in demons and you can hold to an understanding that in a world in which people don't have really any explanation for most of what happens to them, you know, it is subscribed to, uh, you know, for bad things to demons, but we'll see. I have an index card. It's filled up. It's gonna make. I've got turned it over to the back side so I could write more questions down. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, you know the the the, pl- the people want to talk about that. The question is, do I think there are people who are possessed? The Roman Catholic Church has invested far more in this than anybody else has in Christendom. And they would say, yes. Most that come to them are not. But they believe that some are. Okay? And as I said, all I can do is go, for me... I, in the New Testament, there's no story of somebody who, has, who is a Jesus follower and is possessed, okay? Jesus casts the, the, these demons out of people and then they become a follower of Jesus. So, um, but I have a very, I have a very large imagination of, about a lot of things because I think that when you come to believe as I do that Jesus was actually resurrected and it's not just words but you believe the reality of it you have to accept that there's a lot (laughs) to reality that isn't going to be conquered by a microscope or whatever so I don't know Evie good question I guess that'll go on my card too Yes. I remember a scene in the movie, The Young Messiah. Yeah. And, and he has just witnessed the thousands of Jews that have been crucified yes. on the road. Yes. Which, he, which is a true story brought to us by the historian Josephus. Right. Yes. And he's walking through the streets of
1: I don't know what town, whatever town he's in. And there's this little guy in the corner
0: kind of whispering in his ear. Yeah, dressed in black. Yes. Or somebody, or a demon, yes. or whatever, trying to influence him. And he didn't. He wasn't able to. Jesus resisted. Right. But in the Young Messiah, the way they did the Satan Jesus stuff, with Jesus Satan is a figure in black yeah. who whispers right. to the eight year old Jesus. And and I I always remember in that movie when they confront each other and Jesus is laying down sleeping and and he looks up at this figure, who looks remarkably like Robert Downey Jr., Um, and he looks at me and says, you don't know, do you? See, because Satan has Satan's limitations. Satan is not divine. Satan is not God. Satan does not have God's mind. Satan is a spiritual creature working against God's purposes who tempts. That's the simplest way to understand understand the Bible. Mm Tries to influence that, but how does he do it? How does he do it? He tempts. He tempts. Ah, you see those crosses? That, that could be you. So, try, right? Tries to influence. But the temptation is the how. Because it's the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness that is the guide for that. It was for Anne Rice. Okay, friends. So, anything else? Yes, Mona.
1: Some years tried to follow the path that called it on all of these different right journeys, and through how difficult it must have been for him walking with people through these huge mountainous areas. And we forget as we're reading these words what his life must yes. have been like. day is going through a great deal of physical
0: not pain, but physical pain physical pain and then he gets beaten and left for stone and he climbs his way through these mountains people have estimated he walked 10,000 miles but to make you, to go to your first point the way to read you almost have to enter in the ancient world to read Paul's letters and not skip just large portions, right? And the thing about St. Andrew is that this is a congregation of largely educated, thoughtful people who can do that if they're willing to put a little bit of effort into it. A number of people have come up to me in the last few weeks and said they're reading N.T. Wright's biography of Paul. When we, which he has a lot of that kind of stuff in it because he's, he's an historian first probably is the way I'd put it. So yeah, it's as good lead in. So guess what I get to talk about next? Oh, Patty's gonna miss this part. Okay, <laughs> here's what I get to talk about next. Not that slide, that slide. I get to talk about hairstyles. Yeah. So if you come to chapter 11, verse 2 and onward for about 15 or 16 verses, however long it lasts, and you read it and you think of yourself only in our world, I guarantee you, you will mislead it. You will misread it. So first of all, let's get a couple of things clear. In English, we have words man and woman we have words husband and wife in the greek they do not in the greek they have a word "anur" for men or husband and they have a greek gyna i call it because it's we get gynecologists from it for woman or wife and it's a context in which you have to determine whether the man is a husband or not, or the woman is a wife or not. And that isn't always easy, and it isn't always easy in Paul's letters, and the translators have to do it, but it's, it's something that, that you always come upon, in, in, in that is that makes it difficult. Second thing, hair. In, at, these are all pictures photos taken of various, they could be taken of statues, they could be taken off of um, gravestones, headstones, that kind of thing. And whoever that put this together did a reasonable job trying to show some passage of time. And of course, as I said, the, the, the Roman women were probably pushed the boundaries a little bit harder than the Greek women did. But in this world, in the first century A.D., when paul is writing a proper woman a proper woman and all proper women were married a proper woman wore her hair up 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 she only knew what do they call them updos yeah updos they only knew updos women who were Slaves, women who were prostitutes, which are often, that, that population is practically, ident- not, not that all slave women were prostitutes, but that all prostitutes were slave women is pretty close. To, that's pretty much close to how it is. They could not wear their hair up. They could only wear their hair down. Sort of like the Breck girl. Because hair down was a sign of, well, I've run across this in several places, so it must be true. So a woman who would just walk through the streets of Athens with her hair down would be a little bit like a, wa- a woman walking through the streets streets of Planner today with her top off. Kind of the same thing. Just was it done, was it proper, immediately identified the woman if her hair was down. Proper women, the matrons, the wives, in Roman society, Greek society, they wore their hair up. You see how they're all up. You can find a couple of braids and things here and there, but the hair is up. There's nothing approaching a Breck girl. See, what I love is that I, well, not all of you. Some of you are too young for this. But, most of you are not. Okay, The break, remember the Breck girl, right? The flowing locks and all that stuff, yeah. Nope, nope, nope. So the question is, well, what happens when these Christians come together? Because some of them are, you know, wives, proper wives, proper women of the day, respected. Looked up to. And they would wear their hair up, Presumably. And then there would be other women coming in the door who were slaves who were not supposed to be wearing their hair up and they would come in with the flowing locks down, right? So, so what do we do? Well, it's easy in that kind of situation for the proper women to, to look down upon the not so proper women, okay? Likewise, It would be easy for the not so proper women to be drilled into them that this is just another place driven by the same class distinctions, socioeconomic distinctions that existed outside the Christian community. Even though Paul had written in an earlier letter, and certainly taught everywhere he went, I don't care where the words are that you find them, he taught it everywhere he went, that in Christ, the body of Christ, we are all one, now, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Okay, didn't mean we were all actually the same, but you get this, this un- the unifying of Christ. So, Paul is asked questions from the Corinthians about what they should do about this situation, okay? And again, we will wish we knew more. Sarah Rudin, the classicist I read, um, it's just kind of has her take on this kind of stuff because she's not a New Testament scholar. She's a scholar of, of the Greco-Roman world. So she says, you know, what could be happening is that though some of the proper women are coming in expressing their solidarity with these women of lower class and letting their hair down. And and she said, But that would be like a woman going down to serve at, you know, St. Vincent de Paul, and she's gonna walk in the this woman from Plano. 7, 5 and oh nine three. she's going to walk at the door and she's going to be in a short leather mini skirt with big tall seven inch heel stiletto boots on and everything because she wants to fit in with the folks. <laughs> and they would be insulted by that, of course they would. So she says, well that's probably, that might well be part of this as well. Or we could have slaves, slave women who are coming to these Christian meetings and they're putting their hair up. And so what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And so the Corinthians write to Paul. And Richard Hayes, in his wonderfulness, imagines, this so it's kind of what you have to do, right? We only have one side of the conversation. So he imagines, he knows he spent more time with this stuff than any of us ever would, will, what the letter might be like that Paul is responding to. So let me read for you the letter that, he th- that this is, might be like the letter Paul gets. Dear Paul, we remember you fondly and wish that we could see you again. Some of us are trying hard to maintain the traditions you taught us, such as the tradition we learned at our baptism that in Christ there is no longer any distinction between male and female. You would be glad to know that when we come together for worship, the women in our community continue to play a role equal to the men, praying and prophesying. Because it's clear from multiple places in Paul's letter, that's what happened. Praying and prophesying freely in the assembly under the inspiration of the Spirit, just as they did when you were here with us. But a dispute has now arisen on one point. Some of the women acting in the freedom and power, the spirit have begun to remove their head coverings and loose their hair when they prophesy as a sign of their freedom in Christ. Some of the more timid and conservative members of the community have objected to this, thinking it is unseemly and disgraceful for women to let their hair down in public. Because that would be the standard view, right? A proper woman keeps her hair up. Most of us, however believe that you would surely approve of this practice for it is an outward and visible sign of the truth of the tradition we receive from you we would be grateful if you could comment directly on this matter in order to dispel any doubt about this point we remain your devoted followers the church in Corinth okay so Hayes says what might be going on is that women have this newfound freedom, and they're letting their hair down. and You know? Because that would be a pain in the neck to do every day. And uh, that is not being seen well by the more conservative members. And what do we do? And so, don't have... Could be, I don't know. Now, traditionally, in English translations, there's a lot of talk here about veils. Right? So like, I grew up Episcopalian, in the Episcopal church I grew up in when I was a boy. It was standard practice, I think. There would be in the back of the church a a pile of like doilies. And a woman was to pick up one of these doilies and put it on top of her head with a couple of pins to hold it there while she was in church. And people thought that they were doing what Paul talks about here. The trouble is, the word veil, and there is a Greek word for veil, is nowhere in this paragraph. So, it does seem that what Paul is talking about is updo versus down. That the updo is the head covering. See, that sucker covers the head. Look at that thing. (laughs) How do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look at that thing. That's hair. That's hair. What? So, right? Yeah. Patty, I got dive voice. Patty wants to see all this. She looks like she's got Cheerios on her head. Thank you, Patty. <laughs> You've lost the seriousness you had 15 minutes ago talking about Satan. <laughs> okay so let's just plunge into this a little bit and we'll see where it takes us okay (laughs) but this is important okay another another way that if you don't know these things how would you make your way through these verses if you don't understand about updos the hair down in this world and what it meant and so forth so chapter 11 verse 2 we're just going to read a We'll just, kind of, we'll just kind of read a paragraph because it's about time to stop and we'll come back to this next week. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is is God. Okay. Okay. Well we're already stumbling over our feet here aren't we? Right? Right? So. Whoa. So. In the book of Genesis. How does it work. With men and women in the book of Genesis. Back there, way back there, chapters 1 and 2. This is before anything bad happens, before they, you know, eat the forbidden fruit. Um, Adam, I mean, God picks up the dust of the earth. He blows on it. He creates man. And he get led, the man gets to name animals, and they look around for a companion, helper. various ways of translating the Hebrew word, and realize that there isn't one. So God then puts man... Into a deep sleep, reaches into man, pulls out a rib, and fashions woman. Right? That's the way it works. Now, that distinction, unfortunately, in Jewish traditions, would sometimes come to the point of saying, which it shouldn't because this, these are two different places in, in the opening chapters of Genesis that women are not made in the image of God, which isn't the way to read Genesis. That's not correct. But, you know, in a patriarchal society, the men will do what they need to do to hang on to that. Um, but the distinction between men and women is strong. The distinction between men and women in Judaism is strong, okay? And it doesn't belie the fact that in Christ, you know, there is neither male nor female, because that's speaking of our unity and our oneness in Christ. But the, but the, the difference between the two, the two genders is, is huge in, in the book of Genesis. So what I would ask that you do between now and next week before we go plunging into this and we all go marching somewhere to protest that (laughs) read Genesis 1 and 2 yourself and look at the story of the making of Adam, the man and Eve, the woman and ask yourself, will you let Paul, will you let Paul have some bit of an anchor for himself in the world in which he grew up? This patriarchal world, vastly different from the world of 2022. And (coughs) are you okay with seeing some of that in Paul and being able to read through it to try to hear what it means for us today. Now, some people would say, no, they can't because they, they view the words of the Bible as being inscribed by God on granite. That's just, I, I, I don't think that helps you get what we should get from this letter. But those are the kind of things that we'll, that we'll talk about next week because just that one sentence right there I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And and I could see Patty's <laughs> eyes her eyes beginning to open and her hair stank, you know yeah yeah um so so we're going to come back to that and we're going to try to hear Paul and we're going to try to talk about what what point he is really making. And we'll try to avoid taking any easy ways out of this, which I think some people, some people do sometimes. Um, and you'll see why this is such a, you know, problematic portion of Paul's writings. Okay, so. How's that for a cliffhanger, huh? <laughs> All right. All right. But it's one fifteen, so we need to end. That's, the, oh, that's my commitment. So, wow. Okay, so would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, and these things are kind of swimming around in our heads and our hearts, and if nothing else, they'll remind us that indeed Paul is writing 2,000 years ago and writing in a world very, very different from our own and in so many ways. And we pray that you will help us to make our way through the difficult parts of Paul's letters, do it with integrity, and do it in such a way that we really can hear Paul's underlying message about Christ, our life in Christ, our life together in Christ, and our, our purpose. Well, what, we're, what we're really about in this. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.